0: Amen. This is Acts chapter 27. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adrantium about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day, we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to to the Isle of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete opposite Salmo. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fairhavens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Kata, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run around aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, We finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. This is the word of God. Well, friends, uh, here we are back in the book of Acts. Uh, I know we've taken uh, two Sundays off from our sermon series, so it's been a couple of weeks since we've been on this journey in Acts with Paul, uh, but here we are back at it. Uh, We started this journey nearly a year ago on January 17th, on the first Sunday of the life of this church, and we've committed to walking through this book of Acts for an entire year. So, Uh, Today, we're in the second-to-last chapter, and after this, we only have two Sundays left. It's been quite the journey. Uh, From the very beginning, we focused on this incredible book as not not merely a book of history, though it is that, but as a book of revolution. So often, uh, churches or pastors or small groups will look at this book, and they'll kind of prop it up as a blueprint this is how we plant churches. This is how we start churches. This is what it means to start a new community. This is what it means to to do life together. And uh, listen, as we've seen, there are so many examples throughout Acts that definitely live up to those things. We absolutely see beautiful blueprints for the beginnings of new communities led by the Holy Spirit. We see incredible examples of, of what it means to speak fearlessly as witnesses to the kingdom of God. We see these things all over. And yet to cling to those examples as as mere examples does a disservice to the revolution that is taking place in acts a revolution that began with jesus of nazareth ascending into heaven in acts chapter one and giving the gift of the holy spirit to the world a revolution that began to tear down cultural walls not just between the jewish communities and the gentile communities but the systemic divisions within those communities as well A revolution committed to honoring one's culture and rituals while drawing individuals and communities closer to the Holy Spirit. A revolution that destroys our modern sense of money and finances and self-preservation and rebuilds it into a transparent communal sharing of goods and resources and food. A revolution that is less concerned about church growth and celebrity and more concerned about caring for those facing famine, for those incarcerated, for those wrongfully accused. A revolution that brought a murderous, Christ-hating man named Paul and transformed him into an apostle of Christ. And a revolution that put this transformed man in chains over and over and over again. And we see that. We see that in this morning's passage. We're reminded of that. We've seen Paul in these chains for the past several weeks. He has been in prison this time since chapter uh, 23 and 24. Uh, Paul faces one governor, Felix, and then he faces another governor years later of being imprisoned, years later, another governor named Festus. And then after Festus, uh, he, he interacts, he meets the King Agrippa. And now he's on his way to plead his case after all these years of being falsely imprisoned for claiming that Christ, a dead man, is actually alive. Now he's on his way to make his defense to the emperor himself, to Emperor Caesar. And in this entire passage this morning, these really these fantastical 44 verses uh, that cover the entire chapter, Paul remains in these chains, even as he faces what seems like certain death. Paul remains in these chains even as he continues to follow the Holy Spirit. Paul remains in these chains even as he speaks and acts fearlessly for the sake of his life and the lives of his fellow prisoners as well as the lives of those who have imprisoned him. It really is a fantastic passage, a journey from place to place, an incredible storm, a shipwreck being stranded, starved, scared. And though it's always easy to focus on Paul and Paul alone in these stories throughout Acts, uh, we are reminded that this passage is not just about Paul. Right away, we're reminded he is one of many other prisoners, in fact. We know that there has to be a crew, a pilot, a group of people dedicated to this travel, dedicated to this ship. And of course, uh, prisoners don't travel without centurion chaperones whose sole job is to get them from point A to point B. They don't need to care about the prisoners. They don't need to empathize with them. Their job is to move them. They are, in a lot of ways, cargo on this ship. Nothing more to the guards, except one guard. One centurion uh, who's, who is named and who stands out among the rest in this story, and he stands out among the others we've seen and encountered throughout Acts, Julius. Almost immediately, we're told in verse three that this The centurion, Julius, was kind to Paul, and that kindness manifested itself initially in allowing Paul to go see his friends so that they might provide for his needs, as we're told. It's a stark contrast to how prisoners are often treated, how incarceration is viewed by those in power to to isolate, to confine, to break off from the public world. Oh, man, I just spilled water all over my lap. Um <laughs> but uh, whew, uh sorry guys. But here I'm just going to sit with this but here Julius breaks that. He breaks that contrast. Uh that that he breaks it and not only does he allow Paul to see his friends, but he allows those friends to uh, what we're told to care for Paul. To give to 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 care for his needs. This is more than a mere visit. Uh, This is truly a rejoining of a community. In the world of incarceration and prison, this is really a revolutionary act. We don't see Julius's name mentioned specifically again in the passage, but we do hear of the centurion a few more times, most notably near the end when he saves the life of Paul and the lives of the other prisoners. This was a shipwreck. It would have saved the centurion and the soldiers' reputations and their jobs and me, maybe even their lives if they just killed the prisoners rather than let any of them escape. That's what they talk about. We just kill them, move on. We lost our cargo. Nobody's going to blame us for that. And yet Julius puts all of that on the line, job, reputation, maybe even his livelihood, to save Paul's life, to save the lives of the prisoners. He puts all of that on the line as he trusts Paul and the prisoners, not to escape, but to save their lives by jumping overboard and swimming to the shore. Truly, again, revolutionary. There are two major characters in this story, in Paul and in Julius. In Paul, we find this incredible uh, fearlessness, this continued trust and reliance on the Holy Spirit, a trust and reliance that, that supersedes his physical needs or anything like that. He urges the ship to stop traveling into the dangerous waters. We see this in verse 10. And I'm sure many on the ship uh, think Paul's a little crazy already. And so for this prisoner to stand up and to say, we must stop, would not only serve to further those feelings toward him. uh, And we see that even in Julius's response in verse 11, right? That he doesn't listen to Paul, but instead he trusts those who are actually familiar with the ship, the pilot and the owner. Paul says, don't. And the, but the pilot and the owner say, no, we can keep going. And so Julius trusted them. Of course, verse 14, we just see a storm sweep the ship away, a storm that lasted for days and days, a storm that we're told blotted out the skies and hid the sun and the stars, a storm that, that forced the soldiers to make a, a decision and to cut the lifeboat and let it drift away. This was a massive, life-changing storm. And in the midst of all of this, Paul Really is, is, a, is a shepherd of the ship. Verse 33, he is the one urging everyone on board to eat. He's taking care of, of his fellow passengers. And he doesn't only encourage them to eat, but he makes a promise to them not a hair from your head will be lost. It's amazing. 276 people on board were told they break bread together and they eat. And then the ship wrecks and everyone survives. Like I said, Paul is fearless, and he trusts and relies solely on the Holy Spirit in all he does, in all he says, in every single way he acts. And of course, the other character, Julius, he shares a similar sense of courage, I I would say, to Paul. We're not sure why Julius is the way he is, uh, a, a kind centurion to a man others have wanted to kill over the years. He's kind to all of the prisoners, sparing their lives in order to help them get to land after the shipwrecks. We don't know why he is this way, but he is, we're told. Julius acts humanely by treating Paul not as cargo, not as a prisoner, but as a human. And as a fellow traveler on this ship. In a lot of ways, as a brother. We don't know the type of man he was before this passage, whether he's always kind to prisoners, or if he's had a transformation in his own life. That has turned him away from a previous life of, of abusing and shaming those in chains. But what, whatever it is, he has revolutionized the lives of 275 other people on this ship by standing up for the humanity of Paul and the prisoners, by showing kindness, by completely turning his profession on its head. We'll see what happens after the shipwreck over the next uh, two weeks in the final chapter of Acts, but I'll tell you, we don't hear of Julius or the centurion again. But I would like to imagine that there was a ripple effect due to Julius's actions, that this effect might have changed other guards, other centurions, other soldiers. Did you hear about what Julius did? Did you hear he trusted prisoners to to swim to shore? Did you hear he let one of his prisoners see his friends and receive care and attention? Did you hear about the kindness of Julius? Who knows what effects these actions had not just on those on board the ship but on those who heard about this later or consider the effects these actions have on those of us hearing this today. It's worthy and totally valid to look at Paul in this passage. And talk about his reliance on the Holy Spirit, his unwavering trust in God, his, un- his just unbreakable witness. We see that here. Paul is in chains, standing up to those who have put him in chains, all in the name of God. We see that here as we've seen throughout Paul's journey since that transformation on the Damascus Road. But for me, as I read this passage and studied this passage, I kept thinking about Julius. I kept thinking about how different he was as a centurion and how utterly unthinkable it was for him to show any type of kindness let alone trust to Paul and the other prisoners and i think about what would it look like what would it look like for you and me to do the utterly unthinkable today what would it look like for you to not just be a nicer person in the office but to completely revolutionize your profession to show trust and kindness to those you normally would overlook at best or maybe abuse and dehumanize at worst. What would that mean for you? What would that mean for us as a church, as a community in hell's kitchen to take not just this passage, but the entire book of acts into account and not worry about numbers or finances or growth, but to completely depend on the Holy spirit, even in the face of doubt, even in the face of death to show trust and kindness to those we normally would overlook at best and those we would abuse and dehumanize at worst. It's found in the example of Julius. It's found in the transformed, revolutionized life of Paul. And it's found in over and over in the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. It's found in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's found in the love of God, our Father. This is courage. All of these things wrapped up. This is courage. This is trust. Uh, Willie James Jennings, uh, the Yale professor and theologian and author who has been my and and our constant guide uh, throughout the book of Acts, he actually looks at all of this. He looks at this passage. He looks at this question I'm asking what would it look like? And he calls it hubris. He says it is a hubris that dares to speak at the sight of despair and chaos, saying, God lives, and so too will we live. Paul is the witness who will not give in to fear, and he invites these wayward seaworkers to take hold of his faith. Hear that again. This is a hubris that dares to speak at the sight of despair and chaos, saying, God lives, and so too will we live. Paul is the witness who will not give in to fear, and he invites these wayward sea workers to take hold of his faith. Jennings later says that, that we are always, we today, we are always on the ship that we see in this passage. A ship full of starvation, of uncertainty, of fear. And yet, just as we see in this passage, It is in the face of starvation, of uncertainty, of fear, that Paul stands with God. It is in the face of starvation and uncertainty and fear that Paul breaks bread and gives thanks to God. Verse 35, and he eats with hundreds of people on the ship. It is a hubris that dares to speak at the sight of despair and chaos, saying God lives and so too will we live. This is what we're called to, to live with this hubris, a hubris that says we live because God lives, a hubris that casts out fear and that brings revolutionary kindness and trust into the world. Even when we're on a ship in a storm, even when we're walking the sidewalks in Hell's Kitchen, God lives and so too will we live. Paul knows this and he declares this And the centurion, whether he knows it like Paul does, he obviously senses something unique on this journey. And through this reality of living in the face of death, among all the things that Paul could have done, he breaks bread, and he gives thanks to God, and he eats with his fellow prisoners, and he eats with those who have put him in chains, and he eats with everyone else on the boat. 276 people breaking bread and eating together being nourished, finding physical life together. We see this in verse 35 and in verse 36, before we're told that they were full and they ate all they could and they dumped the rest of the food off the ship. Before all of that, we're told that they were encouraged. As we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, that is the word I want you to cling to, encouraged. This is a fantastical story And it ends at least in this chapter happily. Everyone survives the shipwreck. They survive this horrific, terrifying storm. But more than anything in that survival, they are encouraged together. Prisoner, guard, sea workers, they are encouraged together thanks to the breaking of bread and the giving of thanks. God. They were all encouraged. What would it mean for you to feel this today? For you to feel encouraged today? Where do you turn to normally for encouragement? What is keeping you from feeling encouragement or from turning to those places? What would it mean for you to be encouraged today? Think through that. Don't stress over those questions, but think through those questions Uh, as we get ready for the Lord's Supper. As we do uh, each week, we will take a moment of silence as we prepare for the Lord's table. Let those questions rattle through your head. Let that word bounce around, encouraged. They were all encouraged. See See what comes onto your heart. What stands out to you? Offer your responses to God and sit with those responses. What would it mean to feel encouraged today in the face of uncertainty, in the face of fear, on board a ship in a storm, in the middle of a shipwreck, in the middle of an ongoing, frustrating, heartbreaking global pandemic? In the face of whatever you have in front of you personally, what does it mean for me to be encouraged? sit with that. If you're comfortable, pray through that in this time of silence. And after, after the silence, we'll come together to give thanks to God and to be encouraged through the Lord's Supper. A meal, a, a meal, a ritual instituted by Jesus Christ, a meal, a ritual that brings us closer to his life and his death, that brings us into the active and expectant revolution of his resurrection and of his ascension. This is a meal, a ritual of encouragement because of who Christ was is and promises to be. So take this as a moment of silence and we'll come back together.